0: Well, amen, and thank you so much, ladies, for your service in that regard. Um, boy, you know true worship when you're part of it, and uh, we have it here. This is an amazing, amazing blessing that we have, the, the gifted individuals that can serve us in that way and through that rotation of uh, ministry in music. Um, it is ministry, by the way. It is uh, not the guy who gets up and speaks every week. Um, All of your gifts matter here. All of you have been gifted by the Lord to fit perfectly in His church, in this church. And uh, that has been demonstrated time and time again. And uh, So thank you for the choices there, which fit so well um, with the message. I didn't ask for uh, any of those, but uh, you'll see as today we are speaking on the topic of God's amazing, amazing grace. And we are tackling it from a uh, point of view of, of his attributes. As you know, we've been studying his attributes and we're nearing the end, which is kind of bittersweet, but we're ending on some of the most sweetest attributes of God as we look at his, his goodness. And grace is certainly um, prominent among them. We sang this morning in the the song Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. 'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. 'Tis grace has, hath brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Let's just pray as we um, spend time reflecting on this sobering yet yet so all-important attribute of God. Our Father, we do just pause this morning as we begin um, learning from your word about your amazing, amazing grace. Lord, we, we love you for your awesome majesty and your awesome holiness and your sovereign power in this world and in our lives. Lord, we love you for the fact that you never change, although all we know is change. And Lord, we we love you for your rich goodness to the just and the unjust alike, your goodness to us even before we knew you as our father. But Lord, Now we know you as Father, and we know you as the God of all grace. And so this morning, in some small way, would we return to you a thanks for who you are, and a thanks for this grace, and for us to really understand what it means today, Lord. Open our minds, our hearts, our eyes uh, to your truth in this regard, we pray. In the name of your Son, amen. Well, as has already been suggested, um, we are going to be looking at the God of all grace today. And I get that title from the book of First Peter 5 and verse 10 where Peter says to his readers, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. You know, you've been called to Christ. Will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish you. He is referred here to the God of all grace and that should not be new to any person in the Bible. Even in the Old Testament, he was referred to as a God of all grace where he proclaimed himself to Moses saying, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and who forgives iniquity and transgression. And yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That is just a blast of attributes of God. But but the one that stands out to me for our purposes this morning is the, the compassionate and gracious and slow to anger God which we serve. And with that kind of as an introduction there, uh, uh, the 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 God of all grace is what we're going to be studying today. Now let me just begin by saying this, that... Our religion, if you wish to call it that, is a religion of grace. This is one of the distinctives of our faith. Uh, Our faith is rooted in the grace of God. Now, out of all religions on the earth, all religions known to man, Christianity and Christianity alone is a religion of grace. Uh, Really, you can boil the entire world down to two religions. There are only two. There, are, there is the religion of grace, or you could say um, divine accomplishment, or there is the religion of human achievement, uh, man's merit. All religions fall into one of those two categories, and you are either working for your salvation through the demonstration of your own righteousness and what you can present to God, which, by the way, he says are filthy rags, Or you have the religion of divine accomplishment. And that is what God has accomplished for you on behalf of you in Christ. Grace is the root and core of our gospel. In fact, in Acts 20, verse 24, it is called the gospel of grace. We have a gospel of grace. And then as you move into the New Testament, we are introduced with a completely new way of writing. In fact, because of grace. What used to be the way they would introduce letters as uh, all hail or hear ye, hear ye, and then the important material would follow, now is changed when we come to the time of the New Testament era and we see things like grace and peace unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, a completely new way of writing. Or may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, a completely new way of closing a letter. And the God of our Trinitarian faith in the Bible is referred to as the God of all grace, First Peter 5.10. And the references to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ or the spirit of all grace, Hebrews 10.29. It's all about grace. Everything we've studied up till this point culminates really with the idea of grace. Now I want to just give you a couple of old uh, uh, biblical terms so we know what we're talking about here. When we use this term grace, whenever you find it in the Old Testament, it is the word kanan, and that should be written in your notes today. Kanan means to be gracious or to deal kindly or to to have a, really what's at this word is a condescending favor, a bending down to assist and to help. It is often used of a superior bending down to an inferior or to a subordinate in kindness. And in this case, obviously, our superior is the, cre- the, the creator bending down to the creature. And, and that is the Old Testament sense of it. The New Testament is like it. It is the New Testament word "caris," or charis. Some, maybe some of you know somebody named Carissa or even perhaps you have the name Carissa. And, and this is from the New Testament word grace. That's what that name means. And it means good favor or fortune, that which awakens good pleasure and we use this term to speak of a, of a gracious woman or uh, somebody who speaks with gracious words or who has a gracious disposition. And we know what that means, and it carries a sense of goodness. But here, it is goodness not merely towards the lowly, but it is, in our case, goodness directed towards the unworthy, towards those who have not merited the goodness in return. And so for our definition this morning as we study this amazing, amazing grace, the grace of God is, is the attribute of God whereby he purposefully and freely bestows his spiritual blessing and goodwill upon undeserving sinners. See, we have to remember where we came from whenever we talk about grace. Otherwise, grace doesn't mean anything. And certainly, grace is very tightly related to mercy, is it not? Mercy and grace are kind of like twin sisters that follow each other wherever you see one show up, usually the other one is not far behind. But we should probably, before we dive into this topic of of grace today, tell you a little bit about mercy as well. You see, grace, we have often said, is getting what you don't deserve, right? Right? Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what you do deserve. You see, we all deserve hell, right? We all deserve judgment. We all deserve the discipline of the Lord. But in mercy, he withholds that from us, not getting what we do deserve, while on the same hand, in grace, he gives us what we do not deserve. So understand those two concepts as we... Uh, proceed this morning, that they are very much related to each other, and we need to understand them in light of each other. Well, this morning, I'm going to give you three little topics here about the grace of God. We're going to be looking at the backdrop of God's grace. We're going to be looking at the brushstrokes of God's grace, and we're going to look at some benefits of God's grace today, Lord willing, in the time that we have. Let's begin with the backdrop, because I'm going to paint a picture for you today. Uh, God has painted a picture for us, and God doesn't paint in thin air. God paints all of his glory onto a backdrop. And so we're going to put a backdrop here behind us this morning so we understand the canvas upon which God has painted his brilliant, brilliant colors of grace. And I will warn you this morning that it is not a, um, it is not a brilliant canvas. It is a dark canvas. It, it is somewhat of a gloomy canvas that God has chosen. I wouldn't have chosen this canvas But God has chosen to reveal his grace upon the dark and mysterious and gloomy reality of man's radical corruption. Would you just put that in somewhere underneath this note of the backdrop? God paints his grace upon the backdrop of your and my radical, rebellious corruption, uh, uh, rebellious against God. This is very mysterious. It's a mysterious reality that he would choose human depravity to paint the beauty and wonder of his portrait upon. And we must understand that mankind, as we know, is not just errant once in a while. That mankind is not just imperfect once in a while. That mankind just doesn't make a trip once in a while, but at heart and soul, mankind is corrupt. And mankind is in rebellion against God, and he is fundamentally and fatally flawed at the heart, at the core, at the mind, at the emotions. Every part of man is flawed to the core, and it is in rebellion against his Creator. And if you have any question about that, I would invite you just briefly to turn to Romans chapter 3, where he explains the extent of our corruption. In Romans 3, Beginning in verse 9, you'll remember this question that we asked, I believe, a couple weeks ago. The Apostle Paul asked the question, What then? Are we better than they? And he answers it by saying, Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. They are all under sin. But I stopped reading right there, but that's just the beginning. That's bad enough news, is it not, to be all under sin? But in verse 10, he spells it out. It, kind of the anatomy of depravity, if you will, here. It says, there is none righteous, not even one. Take the best of men. There is not one that you can find is righteous at heart, righteous in the core. There is 11 verse uh, verse 11 rather none who understands this is a reference to the mind your mind is flawed the, your thinking is not proper there is none who seeks after god that's a decision to follow god that's a decision of the will to choose to follow god and here the apostle says there's none who of himself makes that decision verse 12 all have turned away and become useless How they do use their will is to turn away from God. There is none who does good. This could perhaps speak of the hands of man. The hands which are to to build things to the glory of God. And here God declares that whatever man does with his hands, it is not good. And then in verse 13 it says, there is, uh, uh, their throat is an open grave. Do you see how he's using the human body to just work through the anatomy of depravity here? Their throat is an open grave with their tongues they keep on deceiving. The poison of snakes is upon their lips and we're just we're just kind of working through the anatomy of man here uh, verse 14 whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness and their feet are swift to shed blood destruction and misery are in their path and the path of peace they have not known and the bottom line is the problem is with their eyeballs they have no fear of god before their eyes you just need to turn on the news or the youtube channels And see how the anatomy of depravity is playing itself out right now in our day. If you haven't seen this depravity, take a look once in a while. Take a look to see all of this. And the reality, the bottom line truth is there's no fear of God before their eyes. Beloved, that is the gloomy backdrop. The reality that mind, emotions, will, conscience, body, spirit, hands, tongue, feet, eyeballs are seriously, seriously flawed to the core. One writer said, Grace, therefore, is a provision for men who are so fallen that they cannot lift the acts of justice, so corrupt that they cannot change their own natures, so averse to God that they cannot turn to him, so blind that they cannot see him, so deaf that they cannot hear him, and so dead that he himself must open their graves and lift them to resurrection. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the backdrop. And I am sorry. I don't apologize, actually. But, but in my own heart, I'm sorry if that weighs heavy today. You say, Eli, I thought you were going to talk about grace. I am I am, but this is the backdrop, and I'll tell you why I do this, folks, because if I just jump into grace without painting the backdrop, without the, without the canvas being laid, grace becomes something nothing more than to yawn at, and just to say, oh yes, grace, I know. We, we know about grace, But you don't really know about grace until you know about the backdrop upon which grace has been painted on. The point is this. This is our God's canvas. This is our God's painting project. And if you remove this, you remove the the meaning of what is about to come on to this canvas. We would never know grace without first understanding the hard, bitter, jagged pill of our depravity, of our sinfulness. And so we would not start the discussion anywhere else but with the backdrop of God's grace. But praise God, he doesn't just throw up a backdrop there and walk away, right? He begins to paint his portrait of grace upon it. And this is now the brushstrokes that we're going to be talking about of God's grace. Now, I have eight brushstrokes. I had to make this a little bit shorter to uh, get it all in today, so I'm just going to give you five of the the most prominent ones that you will probably be most familiar with, I hope. If not, they will be good reminders here. But I want to begin with the first one, and that is the grace of regeneration. Would you write that in? The grace of regeneration. And what this simply means is this, that if you are a recipient of God's grace this morning, you have been born again born again. You say, oh no, I don't tell me you're one of those born-againers, are you? Well, listen, uh, that's not a term that I would have chosen either. I wouldn't have chosen the backdrop, and I wouldn't have chosen the term, but our Lord chose that term. Those are words right out of Jesus' mouth, which says that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You can't even get your toenail into the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again born from above his words his choice and this is that supernatural life that is injected into the dead sinner the lifeless sinner where his eyes then become open to reality do you remember a time when maybe your eyes were not open to reality Oh, your eyes were open but they weren't open to reality And you lived your life completely apart from God and apart from the truth of his word. But then that awakening happened and you were born anew. You heard the gospel and the gospel energized life into you. And now you saw reality for the first time and the reality of your own sin. But you began to see the reality of God's grace. This is the new life. In John 1, uh, John speaks of this. It says... uh, This true light, verse 9, was coming into the world and it enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, that's you and I, folks, today. As many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Now note verse 13, these children of God who were born not of blood. What is that? Lineage, human lineage. It says, who were born not of the will of man. What is that? Human choice. Nor, it says, of the will of flesh. What is that? Human works. Not born of any of those things, but, praise the Lord, born of God. You see, you didn't have anything to do with your natural birth, did you? And you had nothing to do with your spiritual birth, God implanted his life, the light of Christ shone into our hearts. Now, without a doubt, as a result of that new life, we see things in a different way. And we believe and we repent from our sins. And that is intimately connected to the new birth. Do not ever separate the new birth of God with your own conversion and your own faith and belief and repentance. You see, we have to believe and we have to repent from our sins. We have to turn from that, that sin. And this is what Ephesians 2 is speaking of in verse 8. That by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves, he says. That is a gift of God, lest no man should boast. So, So faith and then repentance as well. We see that in 2 Timothy 2.25, that God grants repentance. That's why we're supposed to be patient with people. We're not supposed to be argumentative with people. They were once like you, not seeing reality for what it is, not having the light of Christ. And so we're patient with them and we give them the gospel And God may grant them repentance as well. And so all of this is in regard to that new birth. That is the first brushstroke of God's amazing, amazing grace. He has given us life. But there's another brushstroke here. This morning we're also going to look not only at the brushstroke of regeneration, but the brushstroke of justification. Justification. This word simply means to declare one as righteous. Righteous. And it's important to understand because um, there, there are other views of justification out there. <clears throat> and sometimes people get very confused and they get really off track with this issue. Justification simply means this, to declare someone as righteous. It doesn't actually mean that they are in fact righteous. Is God just lying here? Is he just turning a blind eye to their sin in justification? It is a legal declaration what is occurring in our justification and it is a result of amazing amazing grace he speaks about this in romans 3 and verse 20 through 24 you can look at that right after the anatomy of depravity we see the anatomy of justification as well through faith in jesus christ all those who believe for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god but verse 24 being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in christ jesus So we are born again, but we are born into this position of justification. And there is an exchange, ladies and gentlemen, that takes place here. How can this be? How can we who are not just be called just? This is done through what is known as imputation. We take on Christ's righteousness from God's point of view. He takes on our sinfulness. What a nice trade, is it not? What a marvelous, marvelous deal. We got the long end of the stick on that deal. And God, as a result, he sees us now in his son. He sees uh, our nature attached to his son, and he judges his son. But then he sees his son's nature attached to us, and he blesses us as if he saw us his own son in us. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's why it is so, so critical for you this morning to be found in Christ. Not interested in Christ. Not, not saying, well, Christ was a pretty good guy. Christ was a good teacher. No, no, no. You have to have so much more than that to take advantage of this grace of justification. You must be found in Christ. That old spiritual were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And it goes on and on and on. And the answer is the Christian today, if he's a true believer, can say, yes, I was there. I was there on the Christ, on the cross with Christ as I have been found in Christ. J.I. Packer writes that justification is the truly dynamic transition from the status of condemned criminal awaiting a terrible sentence to that of an heir awaiting a fabulous inheritance. That's what justification initiates. And it leads us to our third brushstroke this morning here. Not only has he regenerated us, not only has he justified us, taken us from criminal to heir through the process, thirdly, of adoption. Adoption. Do you see how God is just painting this picture? Boy, the new birth would be good enough. Justification and and freedom and release from our prison would be even better. But God takes it a step further, folks. He takes it all the way to adoption. What is adoption? Well, we know what adoption is. It's no secret. It's, it's nothing uh, that takes a rocket science to figure out. Adoption is taking somebody who is not your child and legally making him or her your child. It is a, it is a whole new game. It, it is one thing to love your own children. I mean, you have to love your own children, right? And we do. But to step into the world of adoption, there is nothing more godlike than to grant the gift of adoption to somebody who is not your child. And this is the grace of adoption. He not only says, okay, you're no longer a criminal, but you know, you're on your own now. Hope that works out. No, no, no. He says, you're no longer a criminal. But now you bear my name, you bear my inheritance, you bear everything I have now is yours. That, folks, is why we sing Amazing Grace. We have been made his children. And all over the scriptures this is written as you read. I'm just trying to give you samplings here and there. But First John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are the children of God. There has been a transformation that has uh, taken place. You are now the children of God. And I love Galatians 4.4. 4. I quote it whenever I can. That in the fullness of times, the stage was set. All the events of history were lining up. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law, that they may receive the adoption as sons. This is what the goal was, not merely to uh, cause someone to be born again, not merely to have them become justified and forensically declared righteous, but to bring you to myself, God says, and make you my son, make you my daughter of faith. And Romans 9.25 speaks of this, that it will be said to them in that day, you who were not my people, one day you were not the people of God, now you will be called my people. And those who were not beloved will now be called my beloved. And those who were not my people will now be called sons of the living God. And sons means daughters as well. And I, uh, I'll i never forget my uh, my father-in-law, Dick Churchwell. He, he served his uh, life in law and he did family law for so many years. And he shared stories of the fact that there there were times that with family law also comes divorce you have to do divorces as a a divorce attorney and how discouraging this would become to him after a while to the point where he decided that there came a time in his law career he wasn't going to do any more divorces he was going to be done doing divorces and instead he turned to an element of family law known as adoption and he began to give himself to this this, uh, uh, aspect of law where he would He would work hard and strive to find good homes for children who don't have mothers and fathers anymore, children who have been dismissed and and parental rights either terminated by the state or terminated by the parent themselves, and making those unwanted lives now have a new home. And he had this message, maybe we could get him to come here one day and and deliver it, but it's, it's a message entitled, Are You Adopted? Are you adopted? Because you would first answer that question and say, well, no, I'm not adopted. I've got a mom. I've got a dad. But the question is, are you adopted? And it's so important, ladies and gentlemen, this morning that you be able to answer that question, yes, I am adopted. Oh, I've got a natural mom. I've got a natural dad. But I have a supernatural father, a heavenly father. And I was a criminal, How did me first starting as a criminal, now I am a child of the Most High? Well, it came to me, and it can come to you this morning through the grace of adoption. You say, well, I don't need a dad. I have a dad. You need a Heavenly Father. You need an Abba Father who you can call my true daddy, because uh, earthly parents will fail you, right? They will, kids. And uh, Mom and Dad, you'll fail your children. That's part of being a Mom and Dad, an earthly Mom and Dad. But your heavenly father will never fail you. I could speak long and hard about adoption. I need to move on here to our fourth brushstroke. Let's just let God keep painting here. He gives us new life. He gives us forensic righteousness. He gives us the adoption as sons. And fourthly this morning, he gives us the grace of sanctification. Sanctification. Oh, this is so, so critical to the church today. Uh, We we don't save ourselves, ladies and gentlemen, and we also don't sanctify ourselves. Now, our lives are part of that and the disciplines of scripture reading and prayer and attendance to a, a good local body where the word of God is proclaimed and all of that advances sanctification. But I want you to know that sanctification is by grace. This is why Paul says, having begun by grace, are you trying to finish with the law and, and so you have to understand that your salvation is grace all the way through it. And so it's important to you that if you are a believer, that you understand that your spiritual growth is also that of grace. Don't get into this habit that some people do that, okay, so God, God gave me grace enough to come to know him and serve him, but now I have to work to maintain my righteous standing before him. No, that is not the case. Now, there's discipline involved, and there's spiritual exercises that must be present. But you need to understand, even sanctification comes from God. And it comes, really, you remember the text in Hebrews 12, right? Where he's talking about how a good father will discipline his children. And that's all that is. In fact, uh, it, he says in that passage that, that if, uh, if a father doesn't discipline his children, they are considered illegitimate children. And they're really not children at all. And so what sanctification does for us, sanctification can be painful, but it's bringing us from where we are to where we should be. And it's fixing the problem of our positional unrighteousness. Now make the connection in your mind. I know we're thinking on some pretty lofty terms here this morning, but it's very important for you to understand that justification is that forensic declaration it is it is basically declaring you as righteous. Watch this. Sanctification is the positional actually making you become righteous. Over a lifetime, over a, over a lengthy, difficult trials and spiritual growth and, and development as a Christian, you're growing as a believer now. One is just a declaration. The other one is actually slowly but surely making you what you actually are declared to be by God. And that takes a lifetime. And that's not done until our race is done. But sanctification is so, so important here. We grow in godliness. First Peter two three it spells it out for us quite clearly, and and this issue of spiritual growth, and it says uh, uh, First Peter one three rather, uh, I'm sorry, First Peter chapter two verse three. Uh, verse one says putting aside all malice, and and here's here's the here's the heartbeat of sanctification. Now you are shedding sin is what you're doing. You're shedding sin. Because if you're honest with yourself, you will say, well, how can God justify me? And yet I know I still sin every day. This is how. It's found in the doctrine of sanctification. Putting aside all malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and and slander. And then here it says, like newborn babes, right? Because we're born anew. Long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. It's spiritual growth that he's getting at here. If... If, verse 3, you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. and Beloved, I hope this morning that you have tasted that kindness. And I hope this morning that you do have a desire for the word. I think the very fact that you're here tolerating these long and sometimes technical sermons shows you that there is something in you driving you to the truth of God's word. You're a newborn babe, if that's the case. And you have to grow, and that's what sanctification is. And oh, I could spend so much time talking about sanctification here, but it results here in the sharing of his holiness. That's what chapter 12 says, that there is a sharing that occurs of God's holiness. He shares that with us. And I'll just say this last word on sanctification. This is really... the the main primary difficulty in the American church today. It is really where the rubber really needs to hit the road, and it's often not happening. Some people people go through an entire lifetime in American churches without ever hearing a, a message on the truth of sanctification and the fact that we need to grow and we need to become pure and we need to fight sin and embrace righteousness, all by grace, by the way. Not by your own power. The Spirit of God is now working in you. But churches are weak and shallow. And church members are soft because they've never really wrestled with sanctification. And I hope this is getting through to you here because sometimes... And and you know, our gospel presentations sometimes are only for the purpose of, well, let's get you saved. Let's line you up. Let's get you in the pew. Let's get you given. And the reality is, we need to get you growing. We need to get you to become strong and, and begin to develop as a Christian. And this is why the church sometimes is so lopsided in, in our modern day. But, but God is building his church. And part of building that church is having Christians come aware. Having Christians begin to act their age. Having Christians to begin to, to act their positional righteousness in a practical way. Now, are we going to do it perfectly? No, we're not. We're going to struggle our entire lives with this. But by God's grace, we will become stronger and stronger each day. Ultimately, to our fifth point here this morning, to receive the grace of glorification. The grace of glorification. Boy, don't you get this feeling like... I mean, God could have stopped at any one of these. He could have just left us at any one. I'd have been happy at the very first one. But he keeps piling these brushstrokes of color and brilliance into this bleak backdrop of our sin. And he's just giving this to us for free, do you realize? Everything I've talked about today is free. Oh, it'll cost you. It'll cost you your life. It'll cost you your sin. It'll cost you your rebellion and your holding on to the things which you love of this world. But it's all for free for the taking of those who come. The grace of glorification simply just fast-forwards us uh, fast forwards us into glory. It fast-forwards us to that last day when we will be raised again from the dead like our Lord and Savior was raised from the dead. The day that we will receive our new body, that we will finally shed this carcass of sin, uh, this body of death as Paul referred to it in, Ephes- uh, in uh, Romans 7. Uh, you know, who who will rescue me from this body of death? And he's just struggling with his sin there. He's just honestly facing his sin in that that text. But he's a Christian there longing for glorification, longing for his new life and the powerful resurrection power running through his new uh, veins of his new body and reigning for all eternity. Philippians 3.20 says, The righteous one day will shine like the noonday sun. We'll get there, folks. We're not there yet. But we'll get there through this process of God infusing His amazing grace into us. The point is this this morning, folks. This is just, just some very brief brushstrokes of God's grace. You could study any of those themes out to any degree that you are able, and you will just become deeper and deeper in your understanding of that. The, the portrait of redemption has been painted, though. And it's been painted upon your own life as a canvas. I hope you know this undeserved, unmerited redemption, the portrait of grace. Well, with what little time I have left this morning, I want to ask the question as I always try to ask, so what? So what? Well, if you haven't gotten the idea yet, we're going to just give you a little bit of practical help here as we, as we close our message with with the so what, the benefits of God's grace. As if this weren't enough, now we're going to just look at some practical, practical benefits here. I want, to, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15.10, because you know I'm just having to choose passages here which, which represent grace. I want you, as you read your Bible, to begin seeing grace, implanting this meaning that we've been talking about this morning, when you read and you see the word grace in the Bible, it's everything I've just talked about and more. But, but practically speaking, what's the benefit? Well, in, um, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9, we start to see some of these benefits. I want to show you here the first one. Um, he says, uh, For I am the least of the apostles, and I am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul is intimately aware of his own backdrop, right? Paul looks at his own B.C. life. I say that before Christ. We all have a B.C. life. We all have things we are not proud of of our past. And this is the most important benefit that we understand here. Paul faces that. And let me give you the point. I haven't given it to you yet here. God's grace gives us confidence in who we are. It gives us confidence in who we are. We, we don't have to pretend anymore. We don't have to fake it till we make it anymore. You are who you are. And it is time, ladies and gentlemen, if you have not reached this point already, that you become confident in who you are. For I, Paul says, am the least of the apostles. That's where he's at. And I am not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But look at verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I am what I am, folks. And you, I will tell you, will not begin to to step into spiritual growth unless you come to the point where you begin to be confident who you are, no more pretending past, present, and future sins. I know what I did, I know who I was i'm the least of the apostles i'm not even fit to be called i persecuted the church of god but i am who i am by the grace of god can you say that this morning that all of your all of your uh, idiosyncrasies all of your problems all the things that bug your spouse the most about you and bug your children the most about you and bug your boss about you yes should we should we be developing of course but can you say that i am who i am all my weaknesses, all my frailties, all my past failures, all of these things which bother me the most. I am who I am by the grace of God. And and if you don't like me, and if you don't like you, there's an element that this is what God has done. God has has made me who I am. And this is an important point for us to all understand as we struggle with self-identity and who we are as individuals, that God's grace gives us confidence in who we are. Secondly, God's grace empowers us to serve. Would you look down uh, at verse uh, 10 as well? By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Grace gives us confidence as to who we are, but it also gives us—it com- uh, uh, empowers us to be able to now serve serve without intimidation, serve, serve without, you know, you know be always looking to ourselves and how am I sounding and how am I looking and how am I coming across? It doesn't matter because we are confident in who we are and we are confident in the power that God gives to us. 1 Corinthians 15:10 speaks of this grace working in me as I work, as I serve, as I live in the church and the body of Christ. Grace, Lord willing, gives you energy to be here today, to lock into this message and to hear what God would have you hear today. Grace gives me the ability that, although up early and although in prayer early this morning, gives me the strength to serve today and to give you what you need to hear. And I can't do it without you and you can't do it without me. And this is how God has placed us in the church. 1 Corinthians 3.10 says that as a wise master builder, I work according to the grace given me, I laid a foundation. And, and in 1 Peter 4.10, it says that each of us has received a special gift and we should employ it as good stewards, here it is, of the manifold grace of God. We plug in because we are stewards of the grace of God. And so everybody serves. There's no bump on the log. Oh, I just kind of come to church every day. I don't know. I don't have much to offer. You know, I'm just here kind of hanging out. Oh, No. You have a critical role. You've been placed, positioned by the Lord of the church to function in strength and serve with power. It gives us confidence. It gives us power to serve. Thirdly, God's grace sustains us in trials. It sustains us in trials. There are times, folks, where I can say that trials are far from me. Have you ever had seasons in your life where it just seemed like trials were so far from me and days were going so well and so smooth i've had days like that and i I remember often as a young person saying what are all these old people always talking about trials for i'm having a great life it's bringing me down but then there are times loved ones where i have been in trials that i thought would never end can you relate to this Trials which were so close to me, they dogged my every steps. I'm never getting out of this. This is never going to get any better. This is never going to change. And then it breaks through. It's almost like God says, okay, you've been taken far enough and you've completed the task. And, and this, this is a beautiful feeling here. And Paul experienced this in, in, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 12.9. Remember he said, because of the the greatness of the revelations, God had to humble me. And God had to give me a thorn in the flesh, and we don't know what that was exactly, but he he had to be humbled by God. And he said, I prayed three times, take it away, Lord. And what did he say? My grace is sufficient for thee for power is perfected in weakness. And so this is the the power of God's grace to sustain us in trial. Amazing, amazing grace that we can find help in the time of need, it says in Hebrews 4.16. Let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may find help in the time of need. And I'll never, never be able to get out of my mind the, the grace that was shown to Johnny, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. Do you know who I'm talking about there? She, she had a wonderful life ahead of her, right? And in her teenage years, she's out with some friends and she dives headfirst off a dock and hits a rock and instantly breaks her neck. And what she didn't know that day was that she would spend the, the next, I don't know, 50, 55 years as a quadriplegic from that day forward. She, had, she was full of life, full of vigor, full of youth and she would now begin her lifetime of quadriplegia that means you're paralyzed and with your arms and your legs won't move won't function right and I've got to see her personally before if you have ever a chance to watch one of her videos but she will tell you the story that she came to the point in her life where she was broken completely and she said Lord God I can't do quadriplegia I'm out take me away and she entered deep deep depression and she tells her story if you hear her testimony that it was at that point that god met her and began to teach her that yes even you johnny can do quadriplegia you can do this by my grace and grace sustains us in trials and and there are times which you can probably relate to this right where times do you feel like in your race I can go no further. I'm winded. My legs are starting to wobble underneath me, God. I can't move anymore for this. And you think you're done, right? You think you're up against that wall. And then, bam, at that moment, you get infused with unexpected grace and unexpected power, which allows you to finish that. That burst of energy sustaining you, meeting you in your place. Grace to stand tall. Grace to do what's right. Maybe your challenge is not quadriplegia, but maybe your challenge is in your workplace, standing up for what's right and standing against what is wrong, standing, sharing your faith, having the ability to, to, to press on. And all of this is by the manifold grace of God in our lives. I need to hasten to move on here. A fourth benefit of God's grace is that it allows us to focus our hope of a, in, in our final deliverance, God's grace is our focus of hope in final deliverance. 1 Peter 1.13 speaks about this as well. And it talks about looking forward. It says, Gird your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, and fix your hope completely on the grace, there it is, to be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You have grace now, folks, but you will have a super dose of grace at the revelation of Jesus Christ and the final and fifth benefit of this this morning we're gonna look at is God's grace nullifies merit-based systems of religion should it not should it not after all of this that you've heard today about God's amazing grace are you seriously gonna tell me that you're now going to relate to God on the basis of your own righteousness and what you can do and, and, and your power as a human to please and serve and, and, uh, and gain the, the uh, righteous favor of God? Are you really serious after hearing God's amazing grace going to try to, to then press on in a merit-based system of religion? God's grace can't be bought. God's cra- grace can't be earned. He speaks about that in the scriptures many times. If it's earned, it's your wage. The only thing you've waged is, the only thing you've earned is, the, is sin, is death. Wages of sin is death. You've earned those, but you can't earn grace. It's like mixing water and oil. It's, it's like mixing baking soda and vinegar. It's like mixing orange juice and milk. ew right? <laughs> Although I said that the other day, and uh, somebody said, well, I like orange juice and milk together. It's kind of like drinking, it's like, um, what'd she say? Uh, yeah, creamsicle. <laughs> and I like creamsicles. But I can't, I can't do orange juice and milk. But anyway, so my illustration blew up. But darkness and light, oil and water, works, righteousness, and grace do not mix together. You don't begin with one and finish the other. And so we approach him on the basis of grace. Free, undeserved merit. Why? Because he is... A God of grace. And I pray this morning that you that you know him. I pray that you know this God of grace. And I pray that uh, you can say with a hymn writer, O oh, to grace, how great a debtor I daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Of course we wander, of course we're imperfect, that's why we need grace. And so I hope today that you've been encouraged at the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of the Spirit. And I hope that grace lives in your heart.